before we start today, I have a message from a listener who says, I really enjoy listening to your podcast, but I can't keep up with all the recommendations. I wanted to ask, do you really read all the books you recommend? Aklam, do we read the books we recommend? <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, and we do lose sleep over it. This is the Boundless Book Club, the podcast from Emirates Literature Foundation. If you have any questions for us, you can email us at comms at emiratesletfest.com or you can message us on social media at Emirates Lit Fest. We're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Today you're here with Ahlam, me, Andrea, and not one but two very special guests. First up, we have Mimi Nicklin, author of a new book called Softening the Edge, which is all about harnessing the power of empathy in the corporate world. This sounds absolutely fascinating. So we will dive into that in a moment. But first, I also want to welcome our very own Isabel Abuhul. Isabel is the CEO and trustee of Emirates Literature Foundation, which is really only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to her many achievements. Welcome Mimi and welcome Isabel. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Today we're going to be talking about the books you can find on the shelves of the business section of a bookshop, which tends to be a quite wide range of books. So I want to start with a question for, for all of you, really. How do you choose books in this genre? Do you, um, do you think to yourself, I would like to know more about brainstorming? So you go and search out a book that teaches you that? Or do you tend to kind of browse the bestseller lists? Or how do you, how do you go about it? Personally, I am a, a complete sucker for uh, titles. So if it's got a catchy title, if it looks as if it's talking about a little bit the psychology behind business and how, how we motivate ourselves and also how we understand that world, those books I will go towards. Now, if it's about, you know, for example, how to get an MBA online and things like that, I pass that by. So I'm very visual in terms of the cover and the title. What about you, Mimi? Yeah, I would agree. I'm, I'm also a sucker for design. I mean, when I did my own book, I just, you know, I think I drove my publisher mad getting every little bit of the design right. Um, but I think the other thing is I tend to follow the authors. So I tend to find business books because I followed the author who tends to be in this category a CEO, a speaker, a thought leader, you know, so I tend to see them on stage somewhere or read about them in the paper or something and then find the books that way and, and sort of follow their journey as well as their actual book. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. I think for me, it's more the level of career that I'm in and what is important to me at that stage, right? Is it about understanding teamwork? Is it about leadership? Is it about, you know, psychology? I do love people's psychology as well and helping understand interactions and how with words and understanding how people think you can get better results in business because there's it's it's a science. I mean, there's there's so much there's there's so much that can be learned through through theory as well as practice, which is really interesting. Absolutely. I wanted to ask a related question to you, Mimi, which is mm. how did you decide to write this book? Because it's if you're following sort of CEOs and what they're writing, did you see that there was nothing that really dealt with what your book deals with? Yes, for sure. There is a there is a gap talking about empathy and leadership and, and what that means from a business point of view. But that's not really why I wrote it. It's it's great that there's a gap um, because it means we can talk about it. But really, I, I wrote it based on, on my experience. So I relocated to Dubai, which is where I think all of us probably are today, um, and got here and took on the, the role of turning around a business. And uh, as someone new in the region, I had a monumental sort of challenge ahead of me and made the decision to, to drive that turnaround with people at the core. So I talk a lot about people beyond profit, which doesn't mean instead of, you know, we all need to make money. Um, but I just had this deep belief that if we could put people at the heart of that turnaround, so not look at the spreadsheets and the PNL and all that stuff, but really look after our people, our suppliers, our clients, all the people in that ecosystem, mm -hmm. that we would grow, that we should be able to build business by putting people first. And um, mm -hmm. we did. And it was a fantastic experience, but it was a difficult experience. And I think that all creativity comes from a tension point. And that tension point led me to writing the book. 
Well, Mimi, I don't, I, I think, you know, you could not have chosen a more important topic to write about in, in this day and age. And, you know, when you think about empathy, it's really, I mean, at the heart of acceptance and coexistence, right? It's at the heart of, you know, what connects us so deeply as human beings in, you know, in, in making our interactions more meaningful, Right. And then it also I think it's a sign of like a resilient psychology in that you are able to predict and understand like what people are thinking so that you can act accordingly. Right. And you so rightfully like mentioned in the book where it's it's the main reason why we've survived and thrived as a population in the last couple of hundred years. Right. So. We know all of this. So why has empathy, the, you know, the empathy deficit come <laughs> come through like in the last 50 uh, plus years how why is it in such a decline why don't we have that empathy factor anymore yeah it's uh it's probably one of the you know the questions i get asked most and and we do we have 30 years of declining empathy from a, from a data point of view so we have data showing 30 years of declining empathy the reasons for that are quite varied and um, urbanization uh, is is one of them you know the fact that we're all i talk quite a lot in the book about leaving our villages leaving our leaving our, our grounding behind traveling the world uh, like probably lots of us on this call and mm. um, so urbanization technology uh, the technology can be a, a source for good as well i like to always say but you know there there is a, a segregation that comes with that individualism the mm. fact that so many of us live alone live lives entirely alone and travel the world for our works and you know in some big cities new york london uh, tokyo we have up to 48% of households are single households. So people are just on their own most of the time. Mm. And we may be living in a health pandemic, but we have a loneliness endemic. And that is a huge, huge social issue um, around the world. Um, and of course, stress and life. So I talk about two great enemies for empathy. One is time, a lack of time, and the mm. other is stress. Um, and most of us, most of the time have low time and high stress so as that you know that pattern continues we do see these empathy levels declining and there's huge impact all across our society and our business so that's why i that's why i want to talk about it because as a marketer what i know is to try and change behavior you first need to drive awareness and that's really what i get up every morning to do as, as an advocate for empathy is just to help people like you said Aflam, think mm. about it more in a slightly different way yeah and there's this like um, need or, 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 or like hunger for growth, no matter what, no matter what that means for your life, no matter what that means for your stress levels. And you, you'll go through anything for that growth. But is the new generation feeling that way as well? Or are they thinking they want a more balanced life from, from the very start? It's definitely changing. Um, mm. I think the generational aspect of this is really interesting. But I also think generation aside, this year, 2020, the world has changed forever, right? Mm. And even if things go back to normal or some version of normal in the future, people's mindsets, people's lives have been so changed in these nine to 12 months. And um, when I look back, so I finished writing last November, more or less. Mm. And uh, I always remember I called my mum when I got my publishing contract and I said, mum, someone's gonna publish my book. And she said, well, darling, that's wonderful, but who wants to read about empathy? <laughs> well, thanks, ma'am. But she was wrong. Just one year ago, so now we're in November, just one year ago, no one was talking about empathy. The media, business, people, society, it just wasn't in the rhetoric out there. Mm -hmm. um, that mindset has shifted. The younger generation, for sure, are the ones saying, hang on a minute, why are we taking antidepressants to go to work? That doesn't make sense. Whereas mm. some of the slightly older ones, we've just sort of accepted it that 95,000 yeah. hours of our lives are unhappy and full of antidepressants. So there's definitely a shift from the generation and, and those um, Zs and the millennials, but the Zs even more so will make a change. But I think it's also a global shift um, across the board. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you to read a part of the book? Do you have the book with yeah. you right now? Yeah, of course. If we can, <laughs> that would be great. There's a part that really stuck with me on page 45. Yeah. This is chapter two, um, and I'm talking here about how we regenerate passion for our working hours. Picture this. You work in an office filled with people you actually want to spend time with because they were handpicked to work with each other. The team was not chosen based on a corporate outline in a handbook covering aligned values that they should possess. 
but because each member has been handpicked to fit with the exact set of people they were chosen to work with. The main hiring criteria is the happiness and fulfillment of those already there and not the clients they will serve or the profit they will achieve. They are chosen for being the right people for our people before all else. You are trusted to work hard because your team knows you want to. Your work routines adapt to fit your lifestyle whilst ensuring that you offer the team the stability and support they need. Given you sincerely like them, you do this as second nature. No one asks you why you're in late unless they're genuinely worried about your health or your commute. And you don't have to ask to take off Monday if you were at a client event all day Saturday. It is a given. The office can be silent or noisy or anything in between. The team sets the energy and no one forces fun. No one shouts, no one chastises, and no one but you has authority over your work. This is a democracy, but with decision-making at its heart and action on the agenda. Wins are shared, success is celebrated, and big failures are okay. Advice is given that at the end of the day, the management of your day is left to you. The idea that experience is the world's greatest teacher is concrete. The CEO is entirely realistic about how the industry goes, accepting that you might work long hours, that your clients can be extremely tough, and that work being at work isn't always fun. They will also accept that sometimes work is just not where you want to be. This is understood and accepted in a culture that respects emotional agility and your need for space and time away from your desk. Wow, that was amazing. And I just felt like when I was reading that part, I hope that it manifests that reality for everyone who reads it, because it does feel like, you know, anyone who reads that, that's what that's the environment that you want to work with, right? That's, that's where you want to be. And so it makes you think, then why isn't it the case uh, everywhere you look, if that's what everybody needs? And it's, it's really simple, but it's also not that simple. <laughs> but that was really interesting. Thank you so much. Um, there was one thing you said there that I was really interested in, which is that every person on the team has been handpicked to get on with the rest of the team, which I... I just wanted to get your thoughts on because I feel like sometimes when you're in a new work environment, you're with people that you would never have chosen in a million years to spend time with, but you grow to love them because you interact with them day in and day out and you find commonalities that aren't on the surface. So how, how would you see the two uh, being balanced? Mm. I think that's the role of the leader or in some organizations I know um, HR takes on that role as well because it's not necessarily about hiring people that are the same you know to your point you know you might work with people and I do every day that are nothing like me you know we don't share context nationality any of that but it's about picking people that you know will work well together and allows them all to to reach their potential and to achieve and what that comes down to is that at the very bottom of sort of Maslow's hierarchy, you know, the very basics mm. of what makes humans thrive. And, and Ashlam said earlier, you know, we're all here to grow. That is a fundamental part of our humanity. Um, is creating environments where people feel safe and secure, that they don't have to um, self-censor, that they can feel confident in their role, they feel listened to and heard, which is what empathy is all about. And building teams that allow you to do that. And it doesn't mean that they have to be similar or that you have a shared context but that you hire people that match and fit that puzzle of the people that you've already got rather than, well, they've got the skills on their CV. So I, do you know I mean, I want that hard skill. So I'm just going to throw them in and the team must work it out. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. <laughs> we can hope. Right? Have you, have you worked in many places like that in your career? I'm lucky that I've always had, um, at least for the last sort of 10 years, I've had space to do that myself. So, um, and I have, I've worked in, in really good organizations. I've, I've been very lucky most of my career. Um, but I think, you know, really getting that to, to a mass level where that's understood on a larger level um, is a journey, but it's definitely a journey that people are on. And when I wrote this, I was a little bit nervous at times because I really am sort of throwing out <laughs> some of the, the standard approaches to HR. And I, I didn't mean that to be, you know, I didn't mean to put down what they've done. I just wanted to bring humanity to the surface of a few of those discussions to help help people. As I said, I just can't bear the fact that people are taking antidepressants to go to work. It just, 
or, or are crying themselves to sleep you know even if they're not on medication they're just miserable and that's uh that's our responsibility those of us that have the ability to impact people in the workplace i believe that we should try and do that with a bit more empathy and, and humanity at the core isabel what do you think have you seen have you seen this in, in your career much have you seen either side of it <laughs> i think it's fascinating what you've been saying mimi so first of all i often think people are in a job they hate and uh either because of their circumstances um or, or the inability to, to to get another job they continue in that job and if you have someone in the team who's very negative because they absolutely hate what they're doing that's going to impact on all the team there's no way negativity as a as a sort of a, a sense within us if we're negative about things it will it will make everyone else less positive less optimistic less empathetic and people tend to sort of close in on themselves so i think I think that's one thing people have to recognize, is this the job for me? And if it's not, have the courage to, to really think about, and I'm a person who believes in passion. So if you are doing something you believe in and you're passionate about, you will tackle the horrible jobs as well as, because you know it's, a, it's, it's the journey that you're on and you've got to do it. You're not going to get to that rainbow unless you do it. So, so that's one thing. And there's been a big move which started really before the pandemic of people giving up jobs in the city in London, if you look at London, and moving to the countryside and setting up small holdings or, you know, doing, doing something that they, and the happiness and the, the, the joy that, that they feel and that sense of well-being within them. And mental health has been a tremendous issue around the world during lockdown. That, that those people who live on their own have, have not had that, that physical contact with people. So I honestly believe absolutely what you say, how important empathy is. But I wanted to add to that because one of the things I'm most passionate about is getting people reading for pleasure. And it has been, the statistics have shown over the last 40 plus years that those children that read regularly for pleasure are more empathetic than their mm -hmm. peers. Now, because they're able through stories to put themselves in another's shoes, to imagine what it was like um, to be Saru Briley, who features in Lion and who's been to our festival, um, to be a little child lost at five years old and he can't find his way home and ends up in Australia. So, so when you read that, you, you can feel what he felt, but if you don't read, are you, are you, you know, as a child, you need to be able to put yourself in the hero and heroine's shoes. You need to be able to identify, you need to have those dreams. And I, I, I think reading uh, for children is so important. So I'm totally with you. Empathy is one of the skills that if you cannot put yourself in someone else's shoes, you, you are lacking such a key skill. And I've always felt that there are invisible people around us. And I hate anyone being invisible. So someone may make you a lovely coffee. Someone may fill your car up with petrol. Someone may help you out. You know, um, I went biking last weekend with my grandchildren. We had to stop for a break. And virtually every single cyclist on the track stopped to say, are you okay? Do you need help? That was empathy. Had I been in a big city, I think I could have been lying flat on my back and no one would have stopped. So, so I think, you know, what you're writing about is so important in the workplace. But what do you feel about people who hate the job they're doing? How can we help them move on? First of all, you made my morning saying all of that because, uh, you know, every time someone says something like you know something like what you just said is about which is you think it's important and uh, you know you talk about reading which is something i talk about a lot and reading to our children and there's lots of data to support exactly what you said i mean even we've got um, mri neurological studies that show exactly what you just said to be true so thank you for saying for saying those things because it really does you know being an author's lonely and um, I said to myself in lockdown that for as long as every day someone somewhere, whether I know them or it's on social media or wherever, says, I think, I think you're on to something, then I'll keep going. <laughs> so, so first of all, thank you. But how do we um, help people in their jobs? I think 
like empathy can't solve everything. There's got to be a point where, to your point exactly, that people have to be brave. Um, and that's incredibly scary. And for some, it's not an option. You know, for mm. some, being brave is just not a reality. And then what it comes down to is mindset. Because fundamentally, how we see the world is exactly that. It's how we, I, Mimi, see the world. Mm. And sometimes mindset shift can have a huge impact on how much we enjoy those things. I mean, often we go around our lives, it's natural. Um, the brain actually skews to negativity, unfortunately. So often we go around and we think, well, why did she do that to me? You know, why did I smile at that lady on the street and she didn't smile back? What did I do? You know, why doesn't she like me? When actually she's just had, you know, some bad news. She's going, it was nothing to do with you. She just is in her own world. So I think mindset is, is a huge part of that. And of course, that is something that you can help yourself with. There are lots of free tools. There are lots of, you know, podcasts and meditations, uh, things like yoga. Um, and of course, therapists and counselors and people out there as well that can just help you perhaps shift your mindset and work out, do you really hate your job? Or is it something about your job that you hate that perhaps is in your control? That's so, that is so valid, Mimi, totally. And as a mother and now a grandmother, what I always said to my children was, try and find a job you can be passionate about. If you wake up in the morning, you think, oh, another day, I've got to go to work and you long for the weekend. It may tell you, I agree, it may be the people you're working with, not the job. And you've got to identify why you don't enjoy it. I, I was a child who loved going to school. You know, I loved school. I loved, you know, I used to look forward to new stationery and, you know, changing from summer uniform to winter, winter uniform. All of those things were so exciting in my life. And I have loved every single job bar one in my life. And when I was uh, uh, doing my what were then called O-levels, um, we took on, we used to do sort of temporary jobs to earn pocket money. So I worked in Chivers Jam Factory just outside Cambridge. And um, I signed on, I think, for six weeks. And after two weeks, I quit because I, it was mindless. All I was doing was moving jam jars from one conveyor belt to another. And then at the end, you would then, after one hour, you'd move to the end of the shift where you would then put them in a box. And the noise, you, I couldn't think, I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, I thought, I know that I have to go on and have better qualifications. So I never have to do a job like this. But bless them, there were people who'd been there all their lives and that was all they could do. And you clocked in and you clocked out. And so you have to, you have to recognize, um, they say horses for courses, that they're not, you know, we will not be able to do every single job. I'm far from a perfectionist as anyone who's ever worked with me. You know, I'm a good enough person or not even good enough, but let's get it done rather than perfection. So people who are perfectionists um, will be highly irritated by me, quite rightly, because, you know, I can't see that I, I want to do it, but I don't care if um, things are not 100%. So, so it's looking at yourself, understanding your, your strengths and your drawbacks, and making sure that if you're in a mentoring position as a CEO or things like that, that you try and help those in your team to reach their potential. What I love is taking someone who has huge potential but has not um, had the opportunities to develop that. And we, I know in our team, Andrea and Ahlam, we have so many who are blossoming and shining. And that, that is one of the joys when you see people suddenly they become braver to take those risks and to try things out that may not succeed, but that doesn't matter. I, I couldn't agree more. We've done that a lot in my team here. And I think Dubai is, is quite a melting pot for that as well, because you just have people from all over the world um, who cross over into your team and uh, you have this opportunity to help them, as you mm. said, find their course. And uh, maybe it's with me and my team, and maybe it's not in the future. You know, maybe that might lead them to become a fashion designer or something, you know. But I agree, there's nothing greater for me than helping people. And, and I think that's actually something I realized this year when I was sort of writing all the content and stuff for my book, which was the words, how can I help? People often ask me, you know, how can I be more empathetic? And we talk about all those skills. But fundamentally, those uh, four words, how can I help, are just so powerful. Um, to help people get onto where they need to go. And uh, it, yeah, it makes a massive difference to people's lives, which is what we're all here to do, really. And I think it all starts with 
with the, the top, right? That the, the leader of the organization sets the tone for everybody else. Um, and if, if that person on, at the top doesn't have these values or doesn't, um, you know, recognize the importance of empathy and, and how the organization needs to mesh together, it's, not, it's just not going to happen. Mm, it does. It definitely starts at the top. Yeah. I think there's a positive and a negative to that. The, the positive is that it's, I mean, it's true. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that person at the top has the ability and the capacity to make that change if we can mm-hmm. just have those conversations a bit more often. It's difficult for middle, all the people in the middle. And, and again, probably, you know, something I get asked probably nearly every day mm-hmm. is my boss or my leadership team isn't empathetic. This is, an, you know, a very sort of... Um, autocratic organization and there's not a lot of value for people can we create empathy you know without them (laughs) because they're clearly not going to do it and how do we build empathy between ourselves which of course is something you can do and and I talk about how we can do that but you're right Aflam that fundamentally change starts at the top. Mimi I wanted to ask you when you wrote the book when you sat down to start writing who did you picture would read it who was your ideal reader? Do you know Obviously, I get asked that by my publisher and marketers and all that all the time. I didn't really have someone in mind because I had the world in mind, you know, and and I always say that the book wrote me. I I don't have to be honest, ladies. I don't remember writing my book very much. You know, when I try and remember writing it, I I can't really. I, I remember the occasions. Oh, I went to this hotel or I sat on this beach or, you know, but I don't really remember where it came from. And I think it's because it was a real innate desire to put something on paper at at speed although I wasn't necessarily in a rush but um, that I really truly believed the world needs to hear and even then I didn't think of it this big and I think that if COVID hadn't happened this would be a very different journey for me because as I mentioned earlier COVID has changed the mindset for people to empathy so I didn't really have someone in mind Andrea which is probably not the best answer but I just wanted to put those words on a page and reach some people to say shouldn't you be a little bit kinder and more empathetic in the world because it just can't carry on like like this and when I talk about my mum and that day when she said well who wants to read about empathy and I said the same thing to her I said you know what I don't know who wants to read about empathy but I have this deep feeling that 2020 something's got to change of course I didn't know about Covid but I just had a sense that this can't go on um it's too sad for the world so yeah so i guess anyone anyone that's open to it was was who i hoped might read it i think that's great i think um i think the world is ready for more empathy and i'm sure it has been for quite a while isabel i wanted to ask you if you think understanding people's personalities help generate empathy or if it's the other way around do you think empathy helps you understand people even if they might be idiots? Yes, that's a very (laughs) good uh, question, Andrea. I think it's a mix of both. I think that we develop empathy um, over the course of our lives and our experiences, and if we're given the opportunity to develop empathy. So, you know, by example, they always say lead by example. So if your parents, your teachers, those at work are empathetic to you, so um, if you come in and you know you look a bit down, someone recognizes that and say, "Are you okay? Can I make you a coffee or or whatever?" I think that that's the empathy. But understanding other people's personality within a team is so important. And you know how much I love this book. Okay, surrounded by idiots. <laughs> All right. Now I love it because it's about psychology of personalities. And I've always been fascinated about how how much we're driven by uh, innate uh, personality, but also how much our environment shapes our personality. And uh, this is written by Thomas Eriksson. Can you say the title in Swedish? Uh, because he's Swedish. Omringad av idioter. Yeah, so he called it Surrounded by Idiots, and it's been beautifully translated into English. It's sold more than three million copies in 42 different languages and the reason I think why it's been so popular is that he writes it in a very very um, empathetic way it's easy to read it's not negative but my goodness is it embarrassing 
because you actually, as you're reading it, you think, oh my goodness, that's so me, that's so me. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I think I'm 60%, I'm 60% probably red and 40% yellow on certain days. And then I change, yes. Now you're going to have to tell us what that means. What is a red? You can see here, there's red, yellow, green and blue. So it's how um, those different personality types have core sort of um, traits. But most people are not 100% of any. You know, you could be a mix of two and you could be a mix of even three. So first of all, Thomas Erickson is Swedish. He's a behavioral expert and he's uh, an active lecturer. And he's been hired by sort of companies like IKEA, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, Volvo, etc., to help their managers, top management, understand about how to get the best out of your teams and what are the best things. So in in the book, he starts off telling you that when he was doing sort of um, research with the company, he came to meet the CEO who said, look, I'm just surrounded by idiots. I need you. I need you to sort it out because, you know, I need to get the job done and they're just not getting on with it. And what am I going to do? And, you know, that is a typical I say red, uh, that's the red <laughs> character. So, so if you feel you're constantly surrounded by idiots, I have to say I'm not surrounded by idiots, I am an idiot. So, so I will start with that because I know that I can be idiotic at times and that I, I sort of my yellow side, which we'll come on to. So the book, it, he uses the psychological me method of DISC method created by William Moulton Marston who wrote a book, Emotions of Normal People, back in 1928. And it uh, categorizes people into different sort of groups. And, and, and he uses, I think, a much simpler. So red people see themselves, not as they're seen by others, but see themselves as driven, resolute, ambitious. Green mm -hmm. people, on the other hand, see themselves as friendly, calm, reliable, considerate, pleasant, patient, predictable, stable, actually green are the most popular, sorry, uh, uh, numbers, uh, thoughtful and good listeners. Yellow people are enthusiastic, charming, outgoing, inspiring, optimistic, flexible, open, creative, spontaneous, convincing, easygoing and communicative. Blue people, those are the ones that um, I probably would be um, least suited to uh, because they're accurate, cautious, correct, detail-orientated, logical, methodical, orderly, quality-orientated, reflective, systematic, thorough, and unassuming. So um, I think one of the great pleasures in is finding yourself in this book and seeing what parts you think match your character. And what mm. Thomas Erickson does, he goes through each character. He sort of spends whole chapters talking about particular character traits and he gives you descriptions from his many years of advising companies and also from his friends group um, and his uh, you know wider contacts and he will say um, he will just tell you how that person responds to different uh, um, activities or different sort of trigger points in their in their lives and it is quite, I was sort of thinking, oh my goodness, I've done that. And oh my goodness, as I was reading the book, I kept seeing myself and I wouldn't say it was flattering. I mean, it's not <laughs> negative. What he's doing is not negative, but he's helping you see yourself. And by doing that, helping you understand why it might be difficult for others to get on with you. And you don't get on with everyone. And I think you have to sort of recognize that. So I really find if I'm with negative people, I really don't like it. So negativity um, impacts on me. You know, I never see a rainy day. I see it helping the garden grow and things like that. So I've been an eternally, I was born optimistic and I'm so glad that I was born optimistic because it's helped me over my life sort of overcome all the challenges that we face. So, you know, that that is an, I think, an innate thing. It was something I was born with and I'm, you know, eternally grateful. So the book for me, one of the key things was that how I perceive myself is not how I'm perceived. So I mm -hmm. might see myself as, you know, optimistic and chirpy and things like that. And I might be seen by others as irritating, you know, uh, butterfly brained, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to understand that, that that's how you will appear 
dependent on other people's personality types. And it's not how you see yourself in a team. It is how the team sees you mm-hmm. and what your impact has on your team members. So, so I think this is, this is a really, really fascinating book. And I mean, it's got great diagrams in it. So he goes through, I mean, he starts off and, and that even on the front cover, it tells you that, that red and green will have challenges getting on, as will blue and yellow. And we can overcome those challenges, but we, it's like saying, you know, if I wanted to train for a marathon, it would be a challenge. It would be more than a challenge for me, I'll tell you. But anyway, it's how you overcome those challenges. It's not that you can't work with different personality traits. It is actually how you can adapt and understand your other team members and how, you know, you might deal with one type one way and another the other way. So he gives huge amount of really, really helpful behavior in looking at other team members and how you can find a better way. So so you are communicating because if you do not understand people's personality types, you are not going to communicate with them in the best Mm. way. So that, that's, that's, you know, this is my favorite book of all time in terms of business. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's amazing how, uh, you know, Mimi's told us about empathy and understanding others. Isabel's book helps us become more self-aware. I feel like the third piece to that, you know, picture is communication and the, the right words and ways of approaching that will help bring it all together. So, so the third step, you understand yourself, you put yourself in others' shoes. Now, how do you communicate with them? I think it's really, really important as well. Very insightful. <laughs> yeah, and it reminds me, Isabel, like you, you talk about, you know, how you see yourself and how others see you. In my old organization, we used to do something called a 360 review where you rate yourself and then your team, people, uh, you know, and above you and people below you kind of rate you as well and people who interact with you. And then the gap, whether the gap is wide or narrow, that shows how self-aware you might be. And you can become, you know, you can narrow that gap if if you continue to become more and more self-aware i think the 360 review uh, is 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 a fantastic thing because um there shouldn't be fear to speak out and say you know to to your to your team leader or your mentor um you know that was uh, that's how i see you and if you'd have done that it would have been easier for me don't throw things at me and expect it to be turned around in two minutes and so on and so forth um mm-hmm. and they should have the they should have the um relationship within a team to have in a in a in a not in a insulting way but to be able to feed back 360 and i think that that is something that you know it can't it's not easy to Mm. sort of and we know that you know when we're dealing with for example externally you know Mm. we might want to say something so if you're if you're dealing with clients and things like that you can't be totally honest with them and sort of roll your eyebrows and say, oh, you know, et cetera. As much as you would want to, you can't do that. So, so uh, um, and I also think we're imperfect. As hu- yeah. human beings, we're all imperfect. And we should never stop reminding ourselves that we're imperfect, but also don't beat yourself up. You know, if you've, if you said the wrong thing, admit to yourself you said the wrong thing try and build that bridge back again but don't then spend the whole week sort of wringing your hands and saying you know oh I should never have done that because you've got to move on you've got to Mm -hmm. keep going and you've got to you you know without you don't not feel uh, remorse because you've done something like that but you still need to keep going. How true it sounds like um, Surrounded by Idiots would be a great book to develop into like a team building exercise where everybody identifies their own color and then discuss how they can work together I bet that's done I'm sure he does those. well he does that that's what he does you know this was the book came out of that so he was using the DESA system and going around uh, particularly in Europe um, helping helping big organizations and smaller ones too develop their teams in in the best way possible and I think he then felt after you know 20 years of doing this I'm going to have to write it down because people asked him to as well and he's made it very um, I'm not saying simplistic but anyone can read that book and identify themselves Mm-hmm. or identify that they are made up of two or three different types of personality. But also how 
he gives lots of advice on how to help your communications when you're dealing with other personality types. Now, if you're dealing with someone that is identical to you, it might be easier to communicate with them because you both recognize that you, you, you are similar in, in certain ways. But then if you're dealing with someone who is the, you know, who's the complete opposite of you in many ways, um, they have as much to offer as you do, but you have to find a way to communicate and give them, give them a platform. They might not be the person who comes out and really shares what they're feeling. They may find communication more difficult than you. So how are you going to find, as you said, Ahlam, I totally agree, between empathy and identifying different characteristics in people, it's how do you then go forward and communicate? So it's a great book and I thoroughly recommend it. And it is translated into Arabic as well, which um, just shows how popular it's been over the since it was published. Can't wait to read it. So moving on, I think, to Andrea, do you, what, what's your book for, for the week, this episode? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, I've got a book that comes in at the marketing end of the, the shelf. Communication bit. <laughs> yeah, not quite, but um, my book for today is The Fame Formula by Mark Borkowski. It's quite an old book. It was published in 2013, but it's definitely worth coming back to. Mark Borkowski is a PR man and he is famous for his high profile stunts and he's just brilliant. He's so fun. And that comes through in the book. He's created some really fantastic stunts, including he planted a whole field of cabbage patch kids. If you remember those ugly dolls from the 80s. So he did a, a media stunt where he planted a field of them. He's commissioned a billboard made of chocolate for Thorntons and he does lots of really fun stuff like that. So this book, which I'd say this is great for anyone, not just marketeers and business owners. It's just, it's a fun book to read for this genre. And it is not so much a how-to as a, a history of publicity as an industry and how PR has evolved. And it just, it's, it inspires you to think a bit more creatively. There's some hilarious stories of how the industry got started with like the real snake oil salesmen and, and scoundrels. <laughs> and P.T. Barnum is a brilliant example. He features quite heavily in here. Um, and you can, I don't know if you've seen The Greatest Showman. He's obviously all over that. And it seems like Mark Bukowski has an affinity for the circus. He kind of, he likes the, the sort of audacity of circus stunts. So out of millions of examples in here, there's a, I wanted to tell you about one example here from the early 1900s. There's um, this Austrian illusionist he talks about called the Great Reynard, and he had a fixer, Harry. And the Great Reynard would announce that he's coming to town. So he's coming to Sheffield, for example, to perform an impossible jailbreak. Can't be done. But then unnoticed, the week before, Harry would slip into town. He would befriend a policeman, inspect the lock of the particular jail cell so that the great Reynard could have the right master key. And then they'd pin the key onto the guard who was guarding him so that they could search him before he was locked up and he would have nothing on him. So <laughs> the whole town would obviously be completely amazed that he was able to pull this off. But what, he, what the book tells you is that in a very entertaining way, is that the actual planning and the preparations need to be so meticulous for the big va-va-voom to, to work. And there is an actual formula. If you, uh, you have to read 370 pages before you get to the promised fame formula, but you don't really mind that <laughs> because it's, it's very, very entertaining. And I'm not gonna, I'll summarize the formula, which is this, you do something, an event, makes you or your brand or your product famous then mm. you have 15 months before you fade into yeah. obscurity because fame unattended goes into decline so within those within the first year you need to have your second wave planned so that he uses lots of examples like madonna every every year she has a new reason to hit the headlines mm -hmm. um, and if you don't do that then you disappear like contestants of Big Brother used to. They were famous for, you know, approximately 12 months and then they were gone. So um, it's really fun. 
my takeaway from the whole book and, and from Mark Bukowski in general is that sometimes you have to just raise your eyes from what you're doing and the daily grind and think really big. Um, you, you still have to do mm. all, of the, all of the necessary work. I think yeah. the blues work, Isabel. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, but then but then sometimes why not bring in the elephants and the and the clowns juggling swords because you know if you don't try even if that stunt fails if you don't try gravity would bring you down anyway so you have actually nothing to lose and then um so my my conclusion here is that if sometimes releasing a box of scorpions in the green room of the BBC might get you thrown out of the building as it did Mark <laughs> Borkowski. <laughs> Sometimes that's a risk worth taking. <laughs> it, it reminds you a little bit of Mad Men and how, yes. you know, you look at like how marketing has evolved, but it also makes you think about like the ethics behind marketing because it can convince you of literally anything. You know, there was a yeah. time where the dairy industry was like, you need milk for calcium, for body strength, for growth, for all of these things. And now it's like, no, 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 dairy is like the worst thing for you. And then, you know, cigarettes at some point were also oh promoted God, yes. as healthy and doctors were, were you know, filmed in, in ads, you know, smoking cigarettes and promoting health. And then now you literally have like mm. horrendous uh, lung cancer pictures on cigarette boxes. And so who knows, like in 20 years time, what marketing is going to be telling us yeah. <laughs> and who's going to benefit true. from it it is really interesting though because now obviously we have these professional organizations there's, there's a chartered institute of public relations professionals and there is you know here in the UAE we have the Middle East PR Association and so on um, so there's like a professional code of conduct now but actually we all started from the circus people that's that's where we co it comes from and that's kind of I think sometimes that's a good thing to remind ourselves that Yes, we have to be professional, but like sometimes let's not forget to be creative. I was going to just say, Andrea, that um, I think advertising at the moment and marketing is the most creative industry in the world. I think all the incredible ideas, where it may be before it was film or you know writing, I think a lot of them are there. And um, what I love about the adverts that now work is they have empathy and kindness at their heart those yeah. are the two things why because it touches our soul it touches mm -hmm. that feeling we why do i i love watching adverts and if you haven't seen it um, watch the latest uk john lewis christmas ad it is the most empathetic kind um, it's not selling products, but it is. Mm -hmm. It's selling that brand that is behind that, that, that you know, that what John Lewis stands for, really. Um, I think it's absolutely amazing. And it's great, Mimi, that that is showing exactly what your book is, that to be successful, you need empathy because you're not going to be successful without it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I love that, Adam. I mean, I... Me and my family, we wait for that ad every year and, uh, and they didn't disappoint. No. Oh, I think it's the best one ever. I mean, if you study it, I mean, I watched it several times looking at all the elements they put in there. Um, but the storyboard, you can imagine, Andrea, the storyboard they came up with to create that ad and all these executives sitting around there sort of, I just, that's how I'd imagine it. I don't know, but um, you would have more ideas. So I think the the fame, what is it called? The fame? This is the fame formula. Fame formula. A fascinating yes. book. It's brilliant. It, it's it's uh, full of fun stories of the things that they used to get up to. Um, yeah. And he does actually, he does say, you know, watch the technology because who knows what we'll be doing next. You know, what's interesting. Last year in the team, we did an exercise where everybody selected uh, their favorite ad and we shared it as a team. And you kind of had to guess whose favorite ad this was. And you could actually tell a lot by, uh, you know, if, if, by a person with the type of ad that influenced them the most. Mm. It, was, it was really, really, really interesting. Yes, that, that, is a, that is a great exercise to 
um, to see what, you know, what ads, and if you were an advertising agency, that's what you'd be doing with your, you know, your, um, where you take segments of society and you will say, this is my target audience. These are who I want to appeal to. Um, and I wonder if the ads are so empathetic. I can't imagine, I think they would appeal to everyone. You would be very hard put True. not to be touched. I don't know. Have you seen the, have you seen the latest Sainsbury's Christmas ad? Yeah, Sainsbury's. Mm, no. Well, I think it's a lovely ad. It's a normal family. There's someone called on the phone, I think, saying, I, can't, I hope I can be with you for Christmas. And, and they, they've had lots of people saying how much they love it. But also a lot yes. of people saying that they find it terrible and very offensive because they don't see themselves in this ad because this ad happens to be a happy black family talking about gravy and Christmas pudding. <sighs> And, and it's, it's astounding, but I think it just shows that there are some people who probably need to read your book, Nikki, <laughs> sorry, <me. laughs> because they, yeah. they just, they obviously have something going on in their lives that makes them yeah. very, very easy to offend. Mm. And negative, negative yeah. in their outlook on life. You know, in the end, we are human beings and we must never lose sight of that. That is what, that is the thread that connects us globally is the fact we're human. And, um, you know, it's not about anything else than that. And empathy and kindness to all human beings is all we ask for. Here, here. There we go. What a note to end on. <laughs> That's all for today. I want to ask everyone listening to consider how you can be more empathetic and maybe that will help when you find yourself surrounded by idiots. <laughs> thanks, for <laughs> thanks for tuning in and thanks again for all the messages. Please keep them coming. We love hearing from you. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and do give us a rating because it helps others find us. The email address again is comms at emirateslitfest.com. We'll put that in the show notes and you can also find us at at emirateslitfest on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. In two weeks time, we'll be talking about the books that make the best gifts. So hit subscribe so you don't miss it. Mimi, Isabel, thank you both so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.